0: I think like many people in my sort of millennial generation, I inherited these scripts about a job being the primary means of self-actualization that I had in my life. And so I spent my 20s playing Goldilocks with different careers, trying to find that perfect fit, that vocational soulmate. And on the other side of working in tech and advertising and design and journalism, I found that maybe some of the dissonance is the result of these sky-high expectations that I had Uh, putting a burden on work that my jobs were not necessarily
1: designed to bear. Welcome back to the Next Big Idea Daily. Our guest this week is Simone Stolzoff, and he wants to know, and I do too, is your job amazing or does it suck? Or here's a third option, is it good enough? Simone's new book is called The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. And in it, he encourages us to think hard about our values when we're choosing a career or a job. And as you're weighing the relative importance of salary, prestige, fulfillment, contribution, and so on, don't forget about the value of time.
0: Valuing time tends to be more fulfilling than valuing money. In the mid-1970s, the average American, German, and French worker all worked roughly the same amount of hours per year. In the developed world, average working hours had fallen for most of the 20th century thanks to technological advancements and labor organizing and increases in wealth. Historically, the richer a person or a country become, the less they work because, well, they can afford not to. But in the mid-1970s, a strange trend occurred. In the U.S., while the average workers' hours in our peer nations continued to decline, the average American's working hours flatlined and some American workers, namely college-educated men, started to work more than ever. Explaining this trend is another essay entirely, but suffice it to say that rather than trade wealth for more free time, as was customary for most of history, American elites started trading their free time for more work. It's well documented that increasing your wealth can lead to more happiness to a point. But once our basic needs are accounted for, a growing body of research has proven that prioritizing time outweighs prioritizing wealth. And thinking about work's role in your life, especially if you're relatively well off, it's worth considering that valuing more free time over more money tends to be more fulfilling and lead to higher overall
1: well-being. In terms of how much Americans work compared to Other countries? Why do you think we're such an outlier?
0: Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think there are lots of potential explanations. The one that I really harp on in the book is the sort of subjective value that Americans give to the workplace. We live in a country that loves to revere work, that treats CEOs like celebrities and plasters, always do what you love on the walls of our co-working spaces. And given the decline of some other sources of meaning and identity in our lives, things like organized religion or neighborhood and community groups, for many Americans, work has come to fill their place. They treat work akin to a religious identity, Mm -hmm. as my colleague Derek Thompson has argued you know, treating work as a religion. And, you know, I think there are a few risks to this. There's the risk that I mentioned yesterday about you know, if your job is your identity and you lose your job, what's left? But there's also you know, risk when it comes to the expectations that we place on our work. Mm. You know, if you are always expecting your work to be a dream or always expecting it to be perfect, it leaves a lot of room for disappointment. And mm. then the third point is that it can neglect other aspects of, of who we are. You know, certainly we are all more than just workers. We are also friends and siblings and neighbors mm-hmm. and citizens. And I think this is particularly pertinent when it comes to thinking about how we spend our time. You know, if we're giving not just our best time, but our best energy to the workplace, it leaves little room for anything
1: else. Tell me about your grandmother. You talk a little bit in the book about your Italian grandmother and how her approach to work differed from her children's and her grandchildren's approaches.
0: Yeah, I do think there is a generational component to all of this. You know, my grandma grew up in a small town in southern Italy where four out of her five kids still live. And her identity was pretty straightforward. You know, first, she was a a woman of faith. She was a a woman of God, a, a Roman Catholic that went to church most days. Second, she was a wife and a mother and a grandmother and for work, she worked at a coffee shop, you know, and what she did was important to her. She, she loved it even, but it did not define her entirely. And then, you know, you think about how that passes down in generational lines. My mom sort of bucked the trend in Italy and ended up going away for college, getting exposed to different perspectives. She ended up meeting a cute American guy mm-hmm. at a holiday party in Switzerland and ended up moving to the United States. And, you know, both my parents are, are psychologists. Um, Which makes me example A, but I also think that their chosen career path is a balance of thinking about how they can pay for their livelihood and their personal interests. And then you know I come along and certainly I was raised with a certain level of privilege and told that I can be whoever I wanted to be, that I should follow my passion. And I think like many people in my sort of millennial generation, I inherited these scripts about a job being the primary means of self-actualization that right. I had in my life. And so I spent my 20s p- playing Goldilocks with different careers, mm-hmm. trying to find that perfect fit, that vocational soulmate. And on the other side of working Working in tech, and advertising, and design, and journalism, I found that maybe some of the dissonance is the result of these sky-high expectations that I had, uh, putting a burden on work that my jobs were not necessarily designed to bear.
1: And the value of time, you know, you point out that most people, in the United States anyway, tend to prefer a higher salary to more time off. Whereas I think you cite some research that shows that people who take more time off are happier, uh, they're more fulfilled. And so maybe we have that backwards.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's in some ways a historical anomaly. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think back in history, the richer a civilization is or the richer an individual is the less they tend to work because, frankly, they can afford not to. But in the 1970s or so, a strange trend began in the United States, where as our peer nations were continuing to decrease the average time they spent working each year, some subsets of Americans started working more than ever, and specifically the highest earners, you know, college-educated elites who could ostensibly afford to not work as much. And so, you know, I think there are a few reasons. One is kind of the centrality of work as a source of identity and meaning in people's lives. The second is the ability that wealthy people have to consolidate more and more wealth with the ways in which they work. And then the third is sort of this hedonistic adaptation or, you know, the lifestyle creep of the ways in which, as we make more money, our standards of of living tend to increase as well and so we think sort of more is always better but you know as the research shows if you have a keen sense of what your level of enough is there are actually diminishing returns to the additional dollars that we make and we might be better off trading some of that additional money for more free time as you mentioned
1: mm. well we might all be forced into making this decision with increased automation and artificial intelligence we're constantly warned that we might all be pushed out of our jobs. Even our knowledge worker jobs hasn't happened yet. In fact, as much automation as we have, people still seem to be working more than ever, but do you think, I mean, can you see a future where we're kind of, uh, forced into more leisure? I mean, I know you, you talk a little bit about universal basic income and I wonder how much you've thought, uh, of this as a serious idea that that we might need to organize our society differently where we work less.
0: I certainly hope so, Mm -hmm. Um, but if we use history as an example, I am not as optimistic. You know, there's this famous essay from the 1930s, and this economist John Maynard Keynes said that by the year 2030, he predicted that we would work only 15 hours a week. You know, due to these technological advancements, and you know, he was very wrong. And you know, we've seen this in other trends of technological innovation. You know, in the the mid-20th century with the innovations of household appliances, things like dishwashers and laundry machines. There was all these predictions about how it would decrease the amount of housework. And in fact, you know, we found more work for us to do. There wasn't actually a decrease in the amount of, of work we did in the home. And so I I don't know, with with automation and AI, it's a tricky one because in some ways it just feels like another innovation. So similar to some of these that we've seen in the past. And on the other hand, it seems like it really is an exos- exponential change as opposed to some of these incremental improvements. And I foresee that it will increase some of the gaps between the haves and the have nots, mm-hmm. the people who are able to successfully wield these new technologies to be more efficient than ever, and the people who will be left behind. And so I think that's something that we have to be really cognizant of in the early innings of of this next game that we're entering right now is how can we through policy and through education try and level the playing field so that there aren't a small subset of workers doing all of the work for the rest
1: of us I'm tempted to linger one more uh, moment on the idea of of universal basic income or other strategies to kind of as you say level the playing field or make kind of use policy to separate work from our identity so that that we might be able to live, support ourselves, support a family without this expectation of grinding, time-consuming work. If we are in fact a rich enough society, if the technological bounty that we've created is such that there is enough for everyone, why can we not let go of the idea that that there's something immoral about not working. I mean, I do feel like that's a thing that if, if, even if we could offer a system where people could have viable income without doing that much work, there would probably be some kind of moral judgment attached to it. Like, well, that's laziness. You know how it really is. It's something deep in our, in our culture, isn't it?
0: Yeah, you know, in the U.S., productivity isn't just a measurement; it's a it's a moral good. I think you know part of the reason why our relationship to work is so fraught here in the United States is that uh, the consequences of losing work are so dire. When, for example, our health care is tied to our employment, or if you're an immigrant, your ability to even stay in this country is tied to employment. And so, you know, that's a future that I want to live in for sure, where we can separate our basic human needs from our employment status. And who knows, maybe in the future, work will be a privilege that people actually pay to do. I I don't know if that utopia will, will come to bear, but I think that we're moving to a place where definitely there is enough wealth and resources to go around if we are a little bit less
1: greedy about the ways in which we share them. Amen, brother. But until we get to that point, and maybe even after, I'm going to keep working at my job, bringing you great ideas from big thinkers. I'll be back tomorrow with another one from Simone. But if you don't want to wait, you could hop on over to our Next Big Idea app, where you'll find all the key insights from The Good Enough Job and hundreds of other fascinating and inspiring nonfiction books. If you don't already have it, just search for The Next Big Idea in your favorite app store. I'm Michael Kavnet, and I'll see you tomorrow.